0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Kaylin McCready sat where you sat 12 years ago. She felt the call of God in her life to be involved in missions, and she decided to take that to the nation. She has been in Nigeria, Joss, Nigeria. For the last 12 years, she's an occupational therapist involved with SIM, and uh, she'll be at a table in the hallway outside the offices. Gaylin, are you here this hour? She was here the last two hours. There she is right there. Would you welcome Gaylin McCrady? <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for faithfully serving for all these years and being a dedicated follower of Christ, representing the Savior and representing our body well. We appreciate that so much. If you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, message of entitled, The Praying Prophet. We know Daniel's one who prayed regularly, and this is a prayer of confession, a prayer of confession. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, that's the Medes and Persians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, which was 70 years. Father, as we look at this passage, Lord, you know my heart as I prepare this, it's my desire that we as a body would see, understand, and then apply the truth that's found here. And Father, I pray that you would move us to a place where we would uh, confess if needed, and we always rejoice and bask in your grace. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Confession. When you hear that word, what comes to your mind? For some of you, it may be a priest with a parishioner on the other side of a curtain listening to the sins of his flock. To some of you, it may be uh, you hear confession, you think of the time you were caught in a vice of sin and you had to fess up to your spouse or fess up to your friend or fess up to your boss because of that sin. For some of you, it's the concept of confession is standing before others or sitting before others in a group and bearing your deepest and darkest secrets and sins. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to have you turn to your neighbor and confess your greatest sin. Uh, we're not going to do that. we would be by, be by myself at the end of this service. Confession. I love the honesty of Max Lucado. He wrote an article about his own confession. He, he writes about the fact, he says, I like beer. I think it's a great way to wash down a spicy enchilada. It goes down with a pizza quite nicely. It's great with uh, peanuts at a ball game and seems appropriate to end 18 18 holes of golf. I like it out of the can, out of the tap, out of the bottle. I like it in a frosty mug. It doesn't matter to me. I just like it. I like it too much. This is Max Licato. He says, I like it too much. In fact, our family has a problem with it, so I decided at the age of 21 to stay away from it. I swore it off. I never made a big deal out of my absence, not someone else's indulgence. I differentiate between drinking and drunkenness. Drinking is okay, drunkenness is sin. I decided in my case the farmer would lead to the latter, that is drinking would lead to drunkenness, so I just quit. Besides that, I was a seminary student for a few years, I was a minister for a few years, and a missionary for several years, and now a pastor for almost 30 years. I've written books and I speak at conferences. A man of the cloth should not chum with Heineken products, right? That's what I felt anyway. Then a few years back, something resurrected my cravings. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it was too many commercials on TV, television, maybe too many baseball games, maybe too many Episcopalian friends who didn't have a problem with it. Just kidding, ha ha. (laughs) I don't know, but quite likely it was just thirst. And so at some point, I reached for a can of brew instead of a can of soda, and as quick as you can pop the top, I was a beer fan again. A once in a while, then once a week, then once a day beer fan. The problem is, I wanted to keep this preference to myself. The problem is, I didn't want anyone to see me. I didn't want beer at home, so my daughters would think less of me. No beer in public, so my congregation would not catch me. So I became one of those guys. A guy who would have a brown paper bag hanging out in the convenience store parking lot downing his brew. I don't know what resurrected the cravings, but I can tell you what stopped them. I'm en route to preach to speak at a men's conference, and I stopped for my daily purchase. I walked out of the convenience store with a beer pressed against my side, scurried to my car for fear of being seen, opened the door, climbed in, opened the can in my brown paper bag, then it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had become the very thing I hate, a hypocrite, a pretender, two-faced, acting one way, living another. I had written sermons about people just like me, Christians who care more about their appearance than they do about their integrity. As the weight of my sin fell upon my shoulders, I knew what I had to do. I had to totally confess what I had done before my God. And I would say before millions of people who read his books and follow his teachings. You have to love the honesty of Lakato. You have to love that he's willing to stand up and say, hey, I'm guilty. The problem isn't drinking. The problem is is that I'm pretending to be something I'm not. I'm doing things I shouldn't do, and therefore it's tattooed on my frontal lobe. Guilty, and I've got to confess and repent and turn from. Confession. You see, confession is way more than just uh, saying I'm wrong. Confession is repenting and saying I want to be right. See, confession is admitting repenting is turning from. Likato finishes that article and says this, Confession is so much more. Confession is a radical reliance upon grace, a proclamation of our trust in God's goodness. What I did was bad, we acknowledge, but God's grace is greater than my sin so I can confess it. You see, when we really know the heart of our Father, we have no problem saying, I'm wrong, I'm guilty. I confess, would you restore me? Because he will, Always. And goes on and says, if our understanding of grace is small, our confession will be small. It'll be reluctant, hesitant, hedged with excuses and qualifications, full of fear of punishment, but great grace creates honest confession. You see, when you know the heart of your father is a heart of acceptance and forgiveness, you have no problem coming to him with whatever the sin is. And the greater your understanding of the father, then your greater willingness to confess before him your sin. Well, in Daniel chapter 9, you're going to see the humility of Daniel the prophet. Over and over again, he uses two words when he describes what's going on, we and us. He associates, associates himself with the nation of Israel. He doesn't say, it's my nation's sin, it's their problem, it's everyone else, but it's mine as well. And I would dare say in our day and age, when many of us are pointing fingers at a lot of people in a lot of places, we need to learn from Daniel's example. We need to learn from Daniel's humility. We need to learn from Daniel's confession. So this is Daniel's prayer of confession for himself as well as his nation. It begins by showing a heart of concern. I want you to look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. I just read it. It's the first year of Darius, the, the king. And that may not mean a lot to us, but the date is quite significant. Darius came into the Medes and Persians, took over the Babylonian Empire. They destroyed the Babylonians and took them over in 538 BC. Now, if you do the math, that's 67 years after the nation of Israel had been exiled to Babylon when they were captured by the Babylonians. And so 67 years previous, the Israelites are defeated by the Babylonians. They're taken into exile into Babylon. And now the Babylonians are defeated and the Medes and Persians rise up. Now what's so significant about that? Well Daniel's reading he's he's remembering the words of Jeremiah He's remembering the words of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had, sp- had spoken these words. God had given this prophecy. This whole country regarding Israel will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon, his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and make it desolate forever. And he goes on and he says in Jeremiah 29:10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So, what Daniel Daniel recognizes in reading Jeremiah is that we as a nation, the Israelites, are to be in exile for 70 years, and now we're 67 years into it. We're to be in exile for 70 years, and now we're almost through with that exile. We only have three more years to go. We've been waiting and hoping and watching, and now the time to be restored has come. But Daniel has a problem. We'll get to the problem in a second. But what Daniel realizes when he, re, when he remembers the words of Jeremiah is this, God has promised to return his people to their land. And this drives Daniel to his knees. It drives Daniel to his knees to confess. His petition is for God to remember his promise, for God to return the people to Jerusalem, for God to return the people to the land, to return the people to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. For 67 years, Daniel has waited For 67 years, Daniel has been faithful. For 67 years, he's waited and he's long and he's done so with hope. I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of waiting. Anybody here a fan of waiting? I mean, I'm not a fan of waiting. I I, I, I waited 67 years one time on the corner of the loop and 31st Street at five o'clock in traffic. (laughs) Were you there with me? Some of you were. Yesterday, Bev decided she was ready for a mocha. She gets a mocha a lot of days, and we go to Starbucks in Belton, and uh, the decision is, do you go through drive-thrus, or do you go inside and get it? Well, I am not a fan of drive-thrus. You know why? Because I'm impatient. I don't like to do it. But today, we had, two grand, or yesterday, we had two grandkids with us. They're in the back. We don't want to get out, so we go through the drive-thru. I needed an illustration for today. So the guy in front of us ordered 120 cups of Starbucks. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That we were there forever, it seemed, waiting for this, these people to get their Starbucks. I don't know about you. I'm not a fan of waiting. I don't like to wait. What's interesting, though, in the scriptures, when we wait upon the Lord and we wait in His power we wait in His might, this is what the Scriptures say. It says, those who hope in the Lord, the word is wait there, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will, fa- they will walk and not be faint. When we wait upon the Lord, when we wait in the power of the Lord. See, Daniel's waiting, but Daniel's just not sitting. Daniel's waiting and Daniel's not watching. Daniel is waiting and he's working and he's serving. He serves multiple kings in two different kingdoms while he waits. It's a good lesson for us. Daniel's waiting for God to do a work that only God could do, and he doesn't lose his strength, he doesn't lose his power, and he doesn't lose his hope. And that's exactly what Isaiah 40 talks about. Some of you are in a waiting mode right now. Some of you are in a waiting mode. You're waiting for Mr. Wright to come along. You're waiting for the job promotion. You're waiting for the test results. You're waiting for the prodigal to come home. I don't know what it is you're waiting for, but are you waning or are you growing in your strength as you wait upon the Lord? So you're pressing into him and leaning into him in the midst of it. Well, Daniel says, I recognize from Jeremiah that in 70 years we're to be restored. And we're now in year 67, if you do the math. And Daniel, as he begins to look around him, grows concerned. He grows concerned. And I get that from verse 3. He grows concerned. He has a heart that's broken over sin and its consequences. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, I, I, I understand that Daniel is concerned because of the end of verse 3. When you put the words fasting, sackcloth, and ashes together in the ancient Near East, we're talking about mourning. Mourning. So as Daniel reads the scroll, or reads, or hears, or remembers the words that were given by him, by God to Jeremiah, he knows in 70 years that returns to the land, but, but Daniel has, you has, has, would think he'd be excited. I mean, three more years and we get to go home. Three more years, we get to go back to worship in the temple. Three more years and everything's going to be restored. Three more years and we get to go back to Jerusalem. Three more years and we're uniting with our families. Three more years, but that's not what Daniel does. Daniel mourns, well, the question is why? Why, knowing that they have the opportunity to go back home, does Daniel mourn? Well, I think, that, I think there are several places in here we could look and reveal to us, but I want you to drop down and look at verse 13 with me. In verse 13, he says, It is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet, and if you underline your Bible, underline this section, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Daniel says, I'm mourning because 67 years later, we're still not seeking after God. Because 67 years later, we're still in our iniquity. 67 years later, we're still not following after God. 67 years in exile, and we're still not seeking and seeking the favor of our God. We've got a problem. And so rather than rejoicing, he's in mourning. Rather than saying only three more years and we're home, he says three more years, we're not ready. Three more years, we haven't turned to our God. Three more years, something's got to change. And that's why this chapter is a confession by Daniel. He recognizes they as a nation are not where they need to be. And so he calls upon God to restore them. If you back up to verse three for a second, I don't want to miss the first phrase. So I gave my attention to the Lord God. So I gave my attention to the Lord God. What Daniel's saying is he was taking time to be in the presence of God. Don't gloss over that. He's taking time to be with God. You ever find it hard to give your attention to the Lord? You see, we talk about, or I talk about, quiet times quite often. And when I was a kid, my pastor would say things, and I felt like sometimes he never fully explained what he was talking about. So I want to make it really clear to you what I'm talking about when I talk about a quiet time. I'm not talking about the hours you're asleep at night, Okay. A quiet time is you in the presence of the living God. A quiet time is you with the scriptures open in the presence of God. A quiet time is you in prayer alone with God. A quiet time is you worshiping God. A quiet time is you and God. It's not church attendance, it's not Sundays, it's not Bible study, it's not small groups, it's not Sunday school class. A quiet time is you in the presence of God. Call it what you want. It's your time alone with God. And Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord. What I find is a lot of us don't don't give our attention to the Lord. And even when we try, we become distracted or disinterested. I mean, I'm not ADD at all, but when I begin to pray, sometimes I feel like a squirrel on Espresso. I mean, I'm just going a thousand miles an hour. You know, I, I begin to pray, and my mind is over here thinking about the basketball game I watched last night, or mine is over here thinking about breakfast the next morning. My mind is over here, maybe for your ladies, baking a cake or whatever it might be. And your mind begins to go a thousand different directions. And you have to reel it back in and pray that God will help me focus upon Him and Him alone. I bet I'm the only one that struggles with that, right? You spend time in the Word and you're reading the Word and studying the Word and before long you're thinking about work or you're thinking about kids or you're thinking about vacation or whatever it might be. Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord. In my experience, being with a lot of you as brothers and sisters in Christ and watching you grow in Christ and asking you about that, what I have found is that the people that tend to grow in Christ, Or those who have a place, they have a plan and they have a time. They have a place, a plan, and a time. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. If you don't have a time that you regularly meet the Lord, chances are you're going to be helter-skelter and you're not going to be consistent with it. So I'll find time when I can versus specific time in the morning or during the day or at night. If you don't have a specific time to meet the Lord, chances are you're not going to do it consistently. If you have a place to meet the Lord, you're not going to do it consistently. If you have a plan to meet the Lord, you're not going to do it consistently. For me personally, I'm the opposite of a lot of people. When I go to bed at night, uh, I, I like to read. I don't fall asleep reading. I turn the light off at a certain time to get enough rest. And so I do the one-year Bible. Bev, Bev and I both do the one-year Bible. Most nights, you find both of us in their reading. Pray at night some, but mostly I pray in the morning. Mostly I spend time before the Lord. I, I do a couple of different things. Uh, I've learned when I drive, oftentimes I've got mic and mic on. So I've quit doing that for several years now. I just make that a time of prayer. When I come to my office, I've got some prayer cards for our missionaries, folks like Gaylin. Lynn. I've got picture prayer cards, and that way I remember to pray for them. I have to do things so that I, I'm, a creature, I'm a creature of habit. And I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm just saying that's what I do. I'm going to tell you that if you don't have a time, you don't have a place, you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. Do you meet God consistently? It's One of the greatest joys in the spiritual life is being alone with the Father. So Daniel says, I gave my attention to God. I I gave my attention to God. By the way, the word for God that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 9 is the word Yahweh. God goes by several names, as you're aware, in the Old Testament. He uses the name Yahweh. It's the only time in all of Daniel's book, in all the chapters of Daniel, that he uses that name. So you've got to ask, why? Why in this one chapter does he use the name Yahweh? It's because Yahweh is the covenantal name for God. When God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, he used the name Yahweh. And what Daniel's doing in this chapter, he's reminding God that he made a covenant to return his people to the land. And he's saying, Yahweh, I want you to remember. And when God would hear Daniel praying, he would know he's preferring to this covenantal name. And so in the next few verses, what Daniel does is confess sin. I mean, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable, verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, he has a fourfold description of the breadth of their sin. In verse 6, he has a description of the depth of their sin. In verse 5, the breadth of their sin. Look at it. We have sinned, number one. We've committed iniquity, number two. We've acted wickedly, number three. We have rebelled, number four. He's saying, This is the breadth of our sin. And for some of us, we need to be listening. We've sinned, we've committed iniquity. We are in the process of acting wickedly. We are rebelling against God. This week we walk with you, or today we walk with you, but tomorrow we do things we want to do that are sinful and wrong. And so it's a fourfold description of the sin of the nation of Israel. It's the breath of their sin. The depth of their sin is in verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets. So God, you sent, us, you sent prophets to us. They spoke to us and they spoke to our kings. They spoke to our princes. They spoke to our fathers. And they spoke to the people in the land. From the palace to the pauper in the street, you sent prophets to call us back, but we did not listen. The depth of our sin is from the palace to the streets. Nobody listened. You sent us people to warn us. You sent us people to turn us back, but we didn't follow after your warnings and we didn't turn back. And so what we see here is Daniel confessing, and note well, we. If you look at verse 5, we have sinned. Look at verse 6, we have not listened. You go to verse 7, but to us, open shame has come. Open shame belongs to us, verse 8. Verse 9, we, we have circled it multiple times in my Bible. In fact, 13 times he uses the word we or us. Daniel identifies himself as a sinner in need of repentance as well. If you read this whole chapter, the tone of this chapter is desperation. The prayer of desperation. Desperate people. We've been to the Wailing Wall several times in the last few years, and if you go to the Wailing Wall, uh, I'll come back to that one. When you go to the Wailing Wall, you see stuff like this. You see desperate people. You see, all the, you see all the pieces of paper jammed in there? People write notes that they want God to answer their prayers, and they jam it into the Wailing Wall Tens of thousands of notes are picked up every single day of people desperate to know God and have an answer from God. Desperation. You prayed desperately before? Hey, listen, we all have. You've got a teenager, they're out, curfew has passed, you're texting, you're calling, they on answer. You know they always have their phone. They're not texting or calling. Your baby's fever is spiking, he or she is listless you begin to pray a prayer of desperation. You're thinking about closing on a deal. You don't know if it's right or wrong. You can't decide, and so you pray a prayer of desperation. Your spouse comes to you and says, I'm not happy, haven't been for a long time. Before you respond, you pray a prayer of desperation. You're getting the courage to ask somebody out. You're single, and you've got your eye on someone else. You pray a prayer of desperation before you make that phone call. Things are slow at the office. The boss calls you into his office and you pray a prayer of desperation before the door closes. You're going down I-35. It's a workplace area. The speed limit is 60. You're going 70. There's a policeman sitting on the side of the road. You pray a prayer of desperation (laughs) that somebody's gone 75 in the lane right next to you. (laughs) Guilty? Guilty, we all are. Prayers of desperation. Larry Libby is a guy I've grown to respect as an author. He wrote often for Discipleship Journal when it was published. And one of the best articles I've ever read on prayer, it's called Prayers from the Edge. He's in his upper forties. His wife has been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. She's in her last weeks of life. And he writes this article, Prayers from the Edge. He says, When you pray from the edge, It's not filled with stained glass reveries. You're not kneeling at the bedside, focusing upon the soft shafts of the morning light. When you pray from the edge, you pray prayers you don't learn in Sunday school, at your mother's knee, in Bible college or seminary. When I prayed prayers from the edge, they weren't filled with music and laughter. They were filled with despair, fear, and nausea. A prayer from the edge sometimes sounds like a sob, sometimes a burst of frustration, for me, at times, it was a sigh of loneliness and a cry of anguish that tore the marrow of my bones. Prayers of desperation. Praying for the prodigal, praying for your marriage, praying for your spiritual life, praying for your friend. Prayers of desperation. And that's where Daniel is. I mean, three years to go when the nation is still in sin, and he's praying this prayer of desperation. God, help us to do something. Help us to turn from our ways. Help us to become something we haven't been. This is what David prayed in Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. In Psalm 130, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. God, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. God, listen to me. We're in a desperate situation and only you can bring us help. We need you, God. That's Daniel's confession. From his confession, he moves to the consequences of their sinful behavior. The consequences, quite interesting. When I look at the remainder of this particular section, what I see here is Daniel, first of all, acknowledges the righteousness of God. If you look look with me at verse 7, he says, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. And Then you drop down to verse 14 in the middle of it, for the Lord our God is righteous. God is right. God is the one who's always right. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is holy. God, what you're given to us, this exile for all these years, is right because we have turned away from you. God, we're convicted of sin. Convicted not of false guilt, but true guilt. God, you are righteous, and because of that, because you are right and we are not, because you are holy and we are not. The consequences are difficult because we've been disobedient we've been disobedient. I mean, it's amazing the way he describes their disobedience in so many different ways. Where we saw in verse five, a fourfold description of their disobedience. Then if you just work with me, look at verse eight at the end of the verse, we have sinned against you. And then verse nine, we have rebelled against you. Then in verse 10, nor have we obeyed you. Then at verse 11, we have transgressed, we have turned aside and we have not obeyed. Over and over and over, Daniel says, we are wrong. And then in verse 13, we have not sought the favor of God. 67 years into it, and we still haven't sought God's favor. We are trapped. We're trapped in this spiritual apathy. We're trapped in this spiritual lethargy. As Bev and I have been praying together, one of the things we're praying for for TBC is that we would be passionate followers of Christ. That we would not be lethargic in our spiritual life. You know, when the same people have been doing the same thing for a long time, I think it's easy for us to depend upon us rather than your own walk with God. And I pray for your passion. I pray that you are passionately pursuing lost people in your sphere of influence, that you are sharing Jesus with them and talking with them. I pray you're a man or woman of the word of God. You're not depending upon a weekly feeding to grow in your faith. I pray that you're inviting folks to worship with you, that you're bringing folks with you to to, to rejoice in the presence of the Savior and see the body of Christ alive. I pray when we worship, we could worship like these kids. Unbridled enthusiasm for the living God. See, some of you get way more excited watching a basketball game yesterday than you ever have in worship. I heard you screaming from my house. Your team's winning and you're going crazy. When's the last time you've gone crazy in worshiping the living God? Alone or here. Unbridled passion for a Savior. For some of us, our confession is, God, we become staid. We become tasteless and passionless. Well, he goes on and he says, we've been disobedient. We've also brought shame upon ourselves. We brought shame upon ourselves. It's hard to admit, but sometimes when we sin, the result is that we become shamed, ashamed. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us. You ever get caught in your sin by someone and you're brought to shame? Ever happened to you? Hey, you talk about somebody, they find out, so they come to you, or maybe they call you and say, hey, I need to talk to you. I heard you were talking about me. Well, not me. I mean, I wouldn't do that kind of thing, of course. Several years ago, I've shared this story before a couple of times, actually, several years ago, um, I love Monday night football, and I love Blue Bell ice cream. It's a great combination. And uh, so Monday night, uh, this is years ago, my kids are home, and uh, everybody goes to bed, I kiss Bev goodnight, and I stay up and watch a little football, and uh, I'm laying there just watching the football game, and all of a sudden I hear from my freezer, eat me, eat me, eat me, eat me. And there's this golden rim container screaming from my freezer, come and get me, come and get me, rescue me from this ice. And so I did that thing. And uh, so I decided I don't want to go through the effort of getting a dish and getting a spoon and having to take it out and put it in there. So am I the only one that's ever done that? Let me see, (laughs) confession time, raise them high. I want to see them. I'm looking, I'm watching. I only got one eye, but I'm okay, good. (laughs) I'm absolving my own guilt right here. So I get this container of Bluebell, I'm laying in front of the television, I, not even on the couch because I was spilling to spill on the couch, so I, I've got a dish towel under it because I know it's going to drip a little bit, and so, man, I, I'm, I'm full game on right now, okay? And so I'm gone for it, and I'm gone to town, and uh, I hear a noise behind me, and it's her <laughs> sneaking up on me. She told me she was gone to bed. And she asked the question, what are you doing? Well, I've cradled that thing so close to my body. <laughs> Watching football. Well, she saw my arm gone about 100 miles an hour before that. What else are you doing? Well, there was just a little bit left in the container, babe. And so I decided, well, there was just a little bit left in the container, but I'd been tacking it for the last half an hour. So that's why I was a little bit left in the con- And I was just embarrassed in front of my own wife. Hey babe, I'm sorry. My parents taught me better manners and I should put it in a bowl and I shouldn't eat so much because I'm fat already and I don't know why you love me anyway and (laughs) just groveled in the dirt while I was there. You ever feel that way? Daniel says, hey, we've been brought to open shame. We've turned away from you. We haven't listened to the prophets. We walk in disobedience. We transgress. We act wickedly. We rebel. And we haven't admitted it. We drink beer in a parking lot in a brown paper bag because we're hypocrites. And Daniel says, that's us. That's us. We've brought this shame upon ourselves. And we're without excuse. We can't make any excuses. Look at verse 9. You're a compassionate and forgiving God, but yet we rebel. Verse 10, you send us prophets, but we don't listen. Verse 11, you spoke through the word, the law, but we didn't obey. And most importantly, verse 14, you're righteous, and we don't seek your favor. Wow. They're just caught up in their sin. Caught up in their sin. They become complacent. They become apathetic. Maybe it's because they've been in Babylon so long they became like the Babylonians. But in Daniel's confession, my friends, it's very thorough. It's very specific. It's very detailed. There's no blaming. There's no making excuses. There's no finger pointing. He just says, guilty. Guilty. We're guilty. Guilty. And so after that prayer, Daniel makes a heartfelt request. He understands the grace of God and that God forgives. And in verse 16, he talks about the desolation of Jerusalem. In verse 17, look at that verse with me. So now, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant with his supplication. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine upon the desolate sanctuary. God, the temple is empty. The temple is not a place of worship anymore. God, would you bring us back and let us worship again? God, would you restore us? That's what Daniel's asking. God, bring us back to that place of worship. Bring us back to Jerusalem. And look at the end of verse 18. Not on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. God, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve any of that. So God, we're not, asking, we're, we're, we're not asking because of what we've done. We're asking for you to display mercy to us. You are Yahweh, the covenantal keeping God. Would you have mercy and bring us back to our place? And following Daniel's heartfelt request, we know God always answers prayer. Maybe not to our liking, but God does answer prayer. And the rest of this chapter is his answer to Daniel's prayer. And we're going to look at it in detail in two weeks because it contains prophetic section called the 70 weeks of Daniel. But I want you to look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, holy mountain being Mount Zion, Jerusalem, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd previously seen in a vision, came to me in extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And basically what he tells Daniel in the remainder of the chapter is the Messiah is coming, take heart. And he's also coming back, take greater heart. Daniel, I've heard you. I'm gonna take you back to the land, but not only am I gonna take you back to the land, I'm gonna bring Messiah. And Messiah is gonna come not once, but he's gonna come twice. And so Daniel, I hear your prayer of confession. And I accept it. When I look at this chapter, my friends, here's what I see. Denial results in guilt. Confession results in freedom. Denial results in guilt. Confession results in freedom. You know, as I was preparing this message, I found myself on my knees in my office this week. It's easy to confess the sins of our nation. Those are in our face right now. It's actually easy to look at our church and to confess our sin. The hardest thing is to look at ourselves and confess our sin. So I was on my knees in my office. I opened up the Bible to Psalm 139. And this is what I prayed on my knees. Search Gary, O oh God. Know Gary's heart. Test Gary and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in Gary. And lead Gary in the way of everlasting. So I just listened. God, what about my heart? Two things came to my mind. I didn't hear a voice, but the Spirit of God impressed on me. Thing number one was this. Hey, Gary, why is it that when other ministries thrive, you become jealous instead of rejoicing sometimes? Why is that? Well, why when you see other ministries and other churches, maybe not even in your area, but somewhere else, think, how come we can't do that? Or even in your area, oh, Gary, why is it you become jealous at times? instead of rejoicing that my kingdom is expanding. I'm on my knees in tears, because you know what? That's true. I wish I could tell you I always rejoiced when I saw that, but sometimes I don't. Second thing. Hey, Gary, why is it that you bask in the approval and respect of other people so much? Why is that so important to you? Am I not enough? Am I not enough? So, Bev and I talked about this the next night. I said, hey, babe, this is what God taught me, and it's quite humbling. I feel like Lakato confessing with a brown paper sack in front of a convenience store. Not that I do that, I don't do that but these are serious enough. And you may not want me as your pastor next week. I don't know. You may say, hey, I want a guy that's better than you. That's okay. Because here's what I do know. I know that our Father accepts us when we confess. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then when I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover them up, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, what happens is when we can't admit that we're sinners and we harbor sin, we groan under the weight of that sin. But then when we're willing to confess that sin, God says, I'll take it away and forgive you. So I want to conclude by doing this. I was praying. In fact, I had my, some guys pray for me. I, I don't know how to quite end this service. The deacons met on Wednesday night, and I said, I want to end the service. I feel like God has spoken to me, and I want him to speak to our people. I want to speak to our people. So I don't want you to respond in false guilt. I don't want you to respond because of shame. I want you to respond because you understand the grace of your Father. And I love Lucato's first quote. When you understand the greatness of your God, then you're willing and able to confess the greatness of your sin. So for some of you this morning, your spiritual life is struggling. When I talk about Daniel spending time in the presence of God, if you were honest this morning, you would say, Gary, I'm the guy who's not doing that. I'm the woman who's not doing that. I'm the person whose spiritual life, I'm not defiant against God, I'm just distant from God. And my spiritual life is not what it needs to be because I'm not a man or the woman of the word. I'm not a man or woman of prayer the way I should be. I'm going to ask you to do a brave thing this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. If that's true of you, right where you are right now, my spiritual life isn't what it needs to be. I'm not the person that spends time. Because I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Some of us, for some of us, your family's a mess. Your family's a mess. You are harboring bitterness towards a husband or a wife, to a son or a daughter, a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law. You're mad at them. You're angry at them. You put up with them, but you don't really love them in an unconditional way. You become distant and bitter and cold, maybe unfaithful and unloving. Maybe it's with a sibling. Maybe it's with in-laws. But things in your family aren't the way they should be. I want to pray for you, too. Would you stand up if that part of your confession this morning? For some of us, we harbor unforgiveness. There's someone you cannot forgive, someone you need to apologize to, and you won't apologize. And so you're an angry person. Your heart is filled with unforgiveness and you just stand before the Savior this morning and confess that sin, would you stand up right now? And finally, for some of us, you've got a judgmental, critical spirit. A judgmental and critical spirit. You assign motives to people. You gossip about them. You judge them based upon the way they dress, the color of their skin, the decisions they make, their political preferences. You become critical and judgmental. Would you stand? That resembles you. Now let's all stand together, every one of us, coming before God and saying, God, you're a great God, and because of that, and because of the great grace that you extend to us, because of that grace, we confess greatly. And Father, we recognize that confession is admitting sin, repenting is turning from sin. And so we just don't confess so we feel better about ourselves. We repent, asking you to turn us back towards you. Father, give us a passion for Jesus. We're going to look at the resurrection next week and give us a passion to pursue him. Give us a passion for our families. Help us to seek reconciliation when at all possible. That we drop the chains of unforgiveness at the foot of the cross right now. Got the critical judgmental spirit some of us have. God, it's just wrong. We live in fear and suspicion rather than trust and love. We confess that. In the silence... Do you hear the chains dropping? Metaphorically, the chains of sin and guilt and shame are being released right now. The gracious God's extending mercy to every one of us. So Father, we bask in your grace. When I acknowledge my sin, you did not cover up my iniquity. When I confess my transgressions, you forgave the guilt of our sin. We thank you for that. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Bless you.